Welcome to the Florence Crossroad Podcast. We're thrilled to share with you an exciting message from our weekend service. If you would like more information about who we are as a church and how to get involved, feel free to visit florencecrossroadag.org. We hope you have an amazing experience and a great week. So if you have opportunity to, to be there, we would encourage your presence. Um, we, we would like to be a formidable army. I don't really think that we're going to have a big issue, but it's nice to have good representation. And so uh, your presence would be well, well appreciated as, as you join us for that. It's good to be home. My wife and I took some time off and uh, we went to, we, it's amazing. You guys had snow here. <laughs> it was 76 degrees where I was. It was just terrible. It was just a horrible experience. We were in Cabo. And uh, I can tell you two things about Cabo, three actually. One, they should outlaw Speedos. (laughs) Unless you're one year old. (laughs) Secondly, um, the fishing was lousy. I know, that's the way I felt too. It was just terrible. Uh, This horrible cold snap that came into Hawaii and the northwest also drifted across and came into the southern part of, of uh, the Gulf of Mexico or the, uh, what's the, what do they call that? Baja, Mexico. And uh, <clears throat> as with it came cold currents that took the fish further out to sea. I did get to go fishing one day. I was fishing for Marla. I saw one. It was honestly, you guys, I didn't know you could actually see them like that, but I saw this thing, and the captain went over there, and they're throwing live bait at him, and the fish just went like this. It's, <laughs> it's not a fun moment. I was not happy. But um, then coming back in, the, 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 the captain, the little boat we were on, he says, I want you to sit on the transom on the very back of the boat. That's cool. It's his boat, so I'm sitting there. And he slows down, and all of a sudden, something nudges me and pushes me out. I look at the biggest stellar seal I've, I think I've ever seen, hitchhiked on the back end of that boat. He's sitting there like this, looking down into the live well, and they're feeding him the fish that I bought. <laughs> Obviously, he did not know my loathing for stellar seals. I'm a salmon fisherman in the Northwest. How many of you guys understand what I just said? So if that's offensive, I, that's, that's your problem. <laughs> I, I don't care for them. They eat too many fish. That's just all I can tell you. That's just my feelings, and I'm sticking with it. So amen. <laughs> this morning, we want to start a brand new series. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm excited for this series. I've labored over this for some time. Uh, this last summer, last end of summer and fall, I did a series on Wednesday night called His Needs, Her Needs. I'm not going to do the whole series. I'm going to have one message that's going to deal with that. But out of that came a real passion to deal with the issues of relationships. And when I say that word, our first thought is marriage. How many of you are a part of a family? You all are. You were either born into a family, you, you were adopted into a family, you have brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, grandparents, adopted parents, you're part of a family. Can you say amen to that? Anybody here that didn't come by natural birth, I'd like to meet you. I would just, so all of us are here as a result of family. And whether we're married or whether we're not, doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is God has designed relationships. And we want to take a look at that concept. We're going to talk about marriage, yes, but we're going to talk about parenting. We're going to talk about being a grandparent. We're going to talk about adult children. We're going to talk about prodigals. We're going to talk about a variety of aspects that come back into this term of family. And I I just believe that God has something to say to all of us in relationship to that. Uh, We're going to begin with the first family. I call it a family broken. We're going to talk about Adam and Eve. We're going to talk about 
who they are and that first family and how, how the effect of the fall has had an impact not only on them, but on every succeeding generation and every person on this earth. It's a broken family. Every human here, every single one of us here, can trace our DNA back to the origins of Adam and Eve. It's not just the biological dynamics of our heritage, of our history, of our bodies, of our physical being, but there is a, there's also what I would consider the DNA of our spirit as well. And, and that concept, our character and our spiritual DNA, all comes back to that first original broken family. Prior to the fall, every person on earth, there were only two, but every person on earth was in a perfect relationship with both God and with one another. Now think about that. They were in perfect relationship with God and with each other. But after the fall, every person on earth, not just Adam and Eve, but you and I as well, are found in a broken relationship with God and with one another. I want you to ponder that this morning because this whole concept of, of this series is how do we restore that relationship, those relationships? How can we have a godly home, a God-blessed marriage, a God-blessed family, a God-blessed heritage of children and grandchildren. How can we restore those relationships? That's what this series is really about. So as we go into this, this series this morning, uh, we're going to turn our attention to the first book of the Bible. We're going to start at the beginning, all right? And we're going to look at that first family because out of that comes the, the foundation of where we're going and what we're going to be experiencing. But before we do that, I'd like you to join me in prayer this morning. Lord, help. Amen. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast on the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, as God indeed said. Isn't it interesting that the very first thing, the first subtlety that Satan would bring to this human creation was the challenge of God's word. You know what? He still is. You, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the trees, which of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. <clears throat> then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat, it, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant for the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband, the dummy, <laughs> who was with her, and he ate too. I want to hit Adam. <laughs> it just ticks me off because God told Adam before Eve was formed what the protocols of the garden were about. And when she came into this world, it was his responsibility to declare to her and to, to share with her what God had told him. And now like a big bump on a log, he's standing there when Satan comes and deceives her, and he says nothing. Don't you go blaming the woman. Preach. <laughs> Amen. Now I want you to follow this thought. 
In 1 John chapter 2, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. If you go back to that passage in Genesis, it says the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. The concepts didn't stop in the garden. It didn't stop in that first century. It didn't stop in that first family. It continues on. This whole concept of this sin and this nature of sin and the desirability of sin that Satan brings into the life of people is a destructive force that fractures relationships. There are three things that I take out of this this morning as you... You know me. I, I've got three points. It's just the way it works. But, and there are probably more, but there are three that really stands out to me. One, one of the impacts, one of the results of this impact of, of the fall was shame that followed. And it was the first response once they found themselves outside of this relationship with God. Verse 7 of Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And that, that speaks, that's a whole other message. From the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Do you think God really didn't know? You see, they didn't know. They were lost. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. This is Adam speaking to God. I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid. Because I was naked. And I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Sin told them of their nakedness. God did not tell them that. There was no monkey pointing at them, laughing at them. There was nobody around but they themselves and God himself. No one told them they were naked, but their own shame spoke of their nakedness. They knew what they had done was wrong. The challenge that I find as a pastor, as I find as, as just a believer... But, but as specifically, as I walk with people over these decades that we have walked, the one thing that seems to be one of the most profound impacts on the human life is shame. Sin or issues of their past, things that they have done or others have done to them, have caused such horrible shame that they live, that people live in, in dread. They live in fear. They live in anxiety. They live, they live in a shame-filled life to the point that they have been literally deprived of all that God has established for them. And that shame comes right straight from the bowels of hell. That shame is the one that creates the uncovering of them, if you will exposes them, if you will. Think about this. <laughs> they were naked before the fall. And there was nothing wrong with their nakedness, and there was nothing of shame within that point. Because they were fully created in the image and in the will and in the purposes and in the mind of God. And they were in perfect relationship with one another and with him. But sin came in, and it broke that presence. No one had to tell Adam that he was naked. Shame told him. Who were they hiding from? They were hiding from God, 
but they were hiding from each other. Notice this. It says, and they took and sewed for themselves clothing out of fig leaves. I lived in California for a while. They grew figs down there. If you've ever lived around figs, you know what I'm about to tell you. Fig leaves are not the sweetest thing in the world. They're kind of prickery, and they've got a sap on them, and they're just nasty. So sin is not only crazy, it's stupid. Why would you want to put a covering of prickery, stickery things on a naked body? I'll just let you think about that one for a while. So they make themselves coverings to clothe their shame. But, but listen to this. It says, and, and Adam and his wife, also Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. God saw that what they had done in themselves was not adequate. None of us are adequate. None of us can clothe our nakedness adequately. But whether it's fig leaves or whether it's us doing things to make us look more righteous, it all fails. God saw what they had done, but it was not adequate. So God took, he killed animals, and he clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. Blood was shed. It was a foretype and shadowing of what Jesus would do when he came into this world and he would shed his precious blood for us to cover our nakedness with his righteousness. But this is more than a natural shame. It's a spiritual one. Revelation says it this way in chapter 3, verse 18. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed. These are not necessarily literal garments. This is, this is speaking of a spiritual covering that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. In Isaiah, he says it even more graphically. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Hallelujah. He has covered me with the robe of of righteousness. There's a difference between righteousness and right living. Y'all understand that? Right living. I mean, I'm not against that. I think we should live right. I think we should live above sin. I think we should live uh, not, not enjoying the, the sins of this world. You know, I, I watched something that just, it broke my heart. Uh, literally, it broke my heart. I watched, I, I get up early. It doesn't matter whether I'm on vacation or not. Sun was coming up. I'm down by the pool in shorts and a short sleeve shirt, just suffering for Jesus. And, <laughs> and I've got my computer down there. I'm enjoying just this moment. And a nice cup of coffee. And I'm listening. As young men had been up all night drinking, all night long. And I'm thinking to myself, that's really enjoyable. You're hungover, you don't know, you're staggering around, your speech is slurred, and this is a wonderful experience. What is it that you're hiding from? What is it that you're trying to self-medicate? What is it that you're so disillusioned in the reality of life that you have to take on a different reality? What is it that's so fascinating? I mean, alcohol runs Cabo. Broke my heart. Because people are still trying to clothe themselves with something to hide their own shame. Too often, we revert back to creating coverings of our own devices. Being good enough or doing this or not doing that. Assuming that what we do and how we, how we behave and how we act is somehow going to become the covering of our nakedness. How many of you were raised in a church that, boy, you had to do this, this, and this, and if you didn't do this, this, and this, you're going to hell in a handbasket? I mean, you all understand what I'm saying? There was no grace. Listen to me. I'm not saying that God condones it. He doesn't like sin. He doesn't wink at sin. But the point being is his, you will never sin enough. Listen to me. You will never sin enough to outdo his grace. 
Hear that. You will never be such a dirty, rotten sinner that your sin is bigger than the grace of a loving Jesus. And we try to cover by doing this or not doing that or, or flagellating ourselves. I, I remember many years ago being in Rome, and I was at the Vatican, and I remember as I'm walking up into this beautiful, beautiful place, here is a man on his knees doing penance, on his knees, crawling up those marble steps, thinking that in his contrition, in his whatever berating of himself, that he, what was he doing? He was putting coverings on himself. And we do it all the time. Being good is obvious. And good things, we, knew we should do so. But the blood of Jesus can only do, only do what's needed to cover our nakedness. Romans 4 says it this way. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Jesus Christ on his death on Calvary, his burial and resurrection took out of every human being's account sin and placed all of that sin into his own account. And he takes his righteousness and he subsequently replaces that righteousness in the account of every human being where sin was taken out of. That does not mean that there's universal salvation. What it simply means is that everything that was needed for a person to know Jesus Christ and to have eternal life has been done. But what we have to do to actuate that is we have to believe. Does that make sense? Amen, Pastor. That's good preaching. I don't know if you know that. That's just good preaching. <laughs> righteousness is deposited into my account through Jesus Christ. That's what God is saying to Abraham. The sin of all mankind was taken out of our account and placed in him, and he put his righteousness, glory to God, he put his righteousness into my account. I'm not righteous of myself. I'm righteous before God, but not of me. I'm righteous before God because Jesus makes me righteous through what he has already done on the cross. Hallelujah. Now, I'm probably the only one in this room that since I came to Jesus, I still screw up once in a while. How, how, many, of you, how many of you, since you come to the Lord, you've messed up? Let me see your hand. Come on, everybody raise your hand. Okay, now take a look at all of the sinners around you this morning. You see, Satan wants to do something. Satan wants to keep you in shame by making you think that your sin is bigger, greater, and grosser than anybody else's. He wants to isolate you to the point of saying, you're the worst of the worst. Nobody has sinned like you. Nobody. If everybody knew what you owe, they would. No, friends, every single one of us are sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. The word says, there is none righteous, no, not even one. Hallelujah. I love it where God says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins as often. As often. I've got news for you. I'm secure in my faith in Jesus Christ because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and what his word affords to me because of what he did on the cross. I do not walk around in eternal insecurity. I'm secure in the faith of my Savior that what he did on the cross once for all is good for everyone. And I have actuated that by my commitment to him and my asking of his forgiveness and mercy. And everybody can say amen or oh me. Because it's the word of God. Amen. Second thing that hits me out of this whole story is not only comes shame out of that broken family, but blame. Now listen to it again. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, 
the woman whom you gave me. That dipwad, did you think about that? Who told you? The woman that you gave me. He not only blamed Eve, he blamed God. Those fig leaves really did the job on him, I'm telling you. And then the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Isn't it interesting that neither one of them said, I did it. I did it. We live in a world today in a society today, in a culture today that absolutely does not want to take responsibility for actions. We want to blame everybody and everything. Democrats want to, re- to blame the Republicans, the Republicans, the Democrats. Congress wants to, to complain against the president, the president against Congress. Nobody wants to take responsibility. I think we should take responsibility. We voted those suckers in. <laughs> I, I, remember, I remember being on the beach down there in Cabo, and I saw a T-shirt that says, I'm on the fun side of Trump's wall. I'm going, oh, God. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, no, I'm on the... <laughs> Never mind. But it's not just enough to say blame. We do one of two things. We will either defer blame to somebody else or we'll take on more blame than we really need to. And, and either one of those are, 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 are incorrect. God, Adam blamed both Eve and God. And as a result of that came what I call deferred blame. And bitternesses arise from that. Don't live with blame. Look at, look at its origins. Blame is a word that you can transfer to another word. Accuser. I didn't do it. My sister did it. What are you doing? You're blaming her? No, you're accusing her. Doesn't that work that way? I heard about a fellow that his, his daughter came to him and says, Dad, somebody stole my phone. Well, who would want to steal your phone? I don't know, but they stole my phone. Comes back a little later says, I found my phone. Somebody put it back in my purse. <laughs> Blame. Not assuming it, accusing somebody, Blaming somebody, not taking responsibility. Responsibility. Say that word with me. Respons- Say it really loud. Responsibility belongs to me and you. Whenever I blame my brother, whenever I blame my sister, I'm taking on the role of Satan himself because he is the accuser of our brethren. Our, that's possessive. If I say our brethren, that means they are my brothers, my sisters, my family, my relationships. And when I bring accusation against my family, I'm taking the part of Satan himself in bringing the accusations. I don't want any part of Satan. Hello? And I don't want to act in any way that would behave like him. Third thing that that hits me is not just shame or blame, but the need for recognition. There is an insecurity that invades almost every human life that demands the need to be recognized in some way or another. We want to be noticed. We want to be 
We want to be admired. We want to be respected. We want, we want attention. We want the reward. It, it's kind of like being part of human life, right? We all desire that. Where, where did it come from? I, I don't know who it was that said it, but I think it's really amazing, the concept that it would be amazing to see what would happen in the kingdom of God if what was done was done for the simple fact of the kingdom and not who gets the credit. I ended verse 13. Verses 14 and 15 announces the curses that would happen to, serp to the serpent. In verse 16, the curses that would happen to Eve. And verses 17 to 19, to the curses of, that would happen to Adam. But verse 20 brings me to an interesting thought, something I'd never seen before. And Adam called his wife's name Eve. Isn't that nice? He named her Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. That's what it meant, the mother of all living. But Adam gave her that name after the fall. Chapter 2 ends with Adam describing Eve as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She was so connected to him that she was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. She was him. She, you touched him, you touched her. They were so unique and singular in thought and action and motion. They were in such relationship that, that they... I think they could probably not talk and communicate in that sense. My wife still does that on occasion when she goes. <laughs> You've seen that? Yeah. I'll be preaching away. She'll sit over there. She's ill this morning. We come home on this four and a half hour petri dish of human spawn and she picked up something and it's just part of this crud so pray for her but but she'll sit there and I'll be preaching away and I'll know that I have not hit something when she just looks at me and goes <laughs> we're still connected <laughs> but on this concept I love the way it says it they were one they were one Say that with me. They were one. These two shall become one. But after the fall, he labels her as separate and distinct from him. Before, they were one. Now they're separate. All because of the fall. And husbands and wives have been separate ever since. And they've been warring with each other ever since. Somebody said that marriages are made in heaven. So does thunder and lightning. <laughs> yes. God wants them to be together, wants them to be one. But here in this relationship, we see the beginning of the family broken. It was a family unit broken. It was relationship that was broken. Why? Because of sin and shame and blame. And now they need to be recognized. I'm man. I'm woman. And now we don't even know what we are. To Adam, she was to bear him children. God did not name her. Adam did. And so doing, he labeled her and relegated her to a position that God, that God never gave her. We've got to get our theology on this one, folks. God did name her. What was her name? What was the name God gave her? No. Genesis 5, 2. Male and female created he them and blessed them. This is God speaking. And called their name Adam. 
He didn't call them Adam and Eve. It was Adam. That's the old King James. If you read it out of the new King James, it says, and he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind. God made the two one. But once sin came into the world, it separated them into two entities that would clash. He labeled her and told her her purpose was to be a mother. Now, there's nothing more noble in my book than a mother. But that's not the highest calling for a woman. Being a father is a noble calling for a man, but it's not the highest calling for a man. Our highest calling is to be a child of God. To be a child is the highest of call. Unless you become like one of the little ones. Unless you become a child. Isn't that what Jesus said over and again, over and again, over and again? Unless you have the faith of a child. Until we assume the right relationship that we are a child of a living God. We will live far beneath the potential that God has intended for you and I to live. The labeling given by Adam created a competition between men and women. Rebellions stem out of that labeling. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, didn't accept Cain's, and because of that competition came, and Cain kills Abel. All because of labels. We live in a world filled with labels. He's a Buddhist. He's a Muslim. He's a Christian. He's gay. He's straight. He's conservative. He's liberal. For God's sake, put the labels aside. We're children of a living God. And when we live with labels, we live with fractured relationships. We'll never come into the full bang of God's blessing, his full bore blessing until we put aside the labeling of one another. And that labeling started with Adam naming Eve. And it fractured the first family. Why do we label people? It gives us a sense of superiority. Look at who I am. I'm not like that. I've got news for you. You uncover your righteousness and you'll see just how shameful all of us are outside of the grace of Jesus. Hello? What's the answer? The answer is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the answer to all of this issue. It's the simplest answer, but he is the answer. I love it in Acts 3. It says, and some, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families. He didn't say all mankind. He said, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I want my family blessed. I want your family blessed. I want this family blessed. I want the prodigals in my family blessed. I want my family not to be fractured. I don't want my family broken. I want my family whole and blessed. And it only can be whole and blessed when I bring my family back under the covering of Jesus Christ. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. My kids were raised in a very austere home. They ate my food and slept in my bed. They went to my church. There was no questioning that. There was no, well, we'll, you know, no, no, no. It was not, it it was, I called it benevolent dictatorship. (laughs) If you didn't want to eat my food or sleep in my bed, leave. 
then you can make your decision. But as long as you were in my home, in my house, you're going to go to my church. You forced them. You probably did say, I probably just screwed them up royal. (laughs) But they still love Jesus. And they still go to church. And they're not eating my food. And they're not sleeping in my bed (laughs) under my roof. Do you catch the point? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a mandate. That's a covenant relationship. You know, a covenant is, a, is, is more than a contract. A contract is what I get out of it and what you get out of it. A covenant is simply this. I have been given the responsibility to carry forth the covenant relationship that I'm in. It's built on responsibility. God gave us responsibilities. It all comes back to this wonderful thing called relationship. God designed us for relationships. There's a story of a man by the name of William Cowper. William Cowper was a very vile, wretched sinner. And he had an encounter with Jesus that changed his life. But his life before that was pretty bad. It was wicked. It was was a, a life filled with shame and horrible things. But God saved him, totally delivered him. And one day he had the invitation to become a a secretary in the House of Lords in England. And he was thrilled with that because this was a very high position. But what he found out was there was going to be a public hearing where he had to address the House of Lords and they could question him and unearth any of his background. Knowing his background, he was extremely ashamed And on this particular night, he attempted suicide four times. Suicide is a horrible thing, and I'm not here to in any way make fun of it, but it's a little bit funny how he, you'll understand, I'm not making fun of suicide, please don't, it's a serious thing, it's a horrible thing. Because of his shame, he was driven to this thought that I can't, I, I will lose reputation, this is horrible, I can't live this way. So he climbs up on one of the bridges over the Thames and he's going to jump into the river but his fear of heights he talked himself down. We're still filled with shame. I've got to end this. He bought a bottle of poison and on his way home he, he was going to take that when he got home and he drops the bottle and breaks it. So he gets home and he says I'll, I'll hang myself and so he He throws a rope around a beam and ties it and gets on a table and jumps off and the beam breaks. I mean, the guy is kind of like pain, despair, and misery on me. Weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. It's just, it's going from bad to worse. So he thought, well, I'll stab myself. He does, and the blade of the knife breaks. Emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted, he goes to sleep. And as he's sleeping, the Spirit of the Lord would speak to him. And he woke up and he wrote this song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel. Sinners plunge beneath that blood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. 
and Cowper goes to the hearing. And before the Lord could say anything, he says, I want to share with you my story. And he shared how his life had been and the sins that he had done and the degradation that he had lived in. And then there came a turning point when God came into my life and saved me and cleansed me and redeemed me. And when he finished with his story, several in the house of the Lord's that day bowed their heart to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord. All because God wants us in relationships. And he sent his dear son Jesus to draw us back to him and back to each other and back in relationships She's now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And these are my brothers and sisters. Not ones that I bring accusation or accusing, but my family. That's the relationship that God wants for his church. And that's what he wants for each of us. Would you stand with me? Sing it again, would you? There is a like to change one word in that. Lose all their guilty shame. Sing it with me that way, would you? There is a fountain filled with blood on from Emmanuel's and sinners plunged be Father, we thank you for the work of the cross, the redemptive grace of Jesus Christ that draws us back into full relationship and fellowship with you and the Father and the Spirit. And through that, the opportunity that we have to be in full relationship with husbands and wives and children and grandchildren and mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters and the family of God and community. Oh, Jesus, thank you for the cleansing blood of Jesus. Thank you for the redemptive act of salvation that you bring into every one of our lives, the opportunity that you afford to all of us. I ask you this morning to speak to all of our hearts. Lord, help us to be drawn to who you are. Help us to be drawn to the very precious side and the heart of the Father. Restore within us, Lord, right relationship between husbands and wives and children and parents, between brothers and sisters and within the family and the community of faith in our own community here in Florence. Help us to be that, that agent, if you will, Father, that, that brings the cohesiveness of relationship through the power of your Spirit. 
I pray, Father, this morning as every head is bowed, every eye is closed, that the enemy has done a rampant work of bringing shame and guilt into the lives of people and, and has suppressed what they can be because of that kind of guilt. Father, we're here this morning thankful for the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. The word of God that says there is therefore now, now, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Wipe away the shame. Wipe away the guilt. Wipe away all of that, that burden, Father, that so limits and hinders us from being that full child of a living God. I pray, Father, that you would allow us that freedom this morning, to know who you are, to deliberately come into your presence and thankful for the blessings and the mercies that you have for each one. So, Father, I'm asking you right now, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Draw us closer to you than we've ever been before. Through the blood of Jesus, we pray. As your heads are bowed and eyes are closed for a moment, you just simply be honest before God. How many of you would say, I'm tired of living with the shame and the guilt. I just need the freedom that only Jesus brings. I want the victories that he has for my life. I, I don't want to live under the condemnation and the cloud. I want to live in the full, deliberate light of God's blessing and mercy. I need that today. I need it right now. I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I'm going to ask my prayer teams to come. And in just a moment after we have given you the blessing... I'm going to ask you to come, whether it's, it doesn't matter what it's for. Maybe it's coming to know Jesus. Maybe you need to get right with God. Maybe it's just that you need somebody to pray with you over these issues that you're struggling with. Maybe it's a family member, or maybe it's a health issue or a circumstance that you're struggling. I want you to take time this morning and come and let us pray with you this morning. Would you do that? Right now, I, I just want you to lift your hands before the Lord as we receive the blessing. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that you've brought to us. And now, Father, I pray that you will bless your people with the full provision of your word. Bless them and keep them. Guide them and direct them. Overwhelm them with your goodness. Shower them with your mercy, your love, and your grace. Keep your hand upon them and grant them your sovereign peace. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. And everybody can say, Amen. Amen. As we sing.